Welcome back to another episode of Kicking It with Krish. Today, I'm joined by Michael Bash, the founder and managing partner of Atento Capital. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Grateful to be here. Hey, thanks for coming on. Well, let's dive straight into it. Tell me about your background. Um, yeah, so I guess my career started at age eight. I had a grandfather, uh, you know, kind of your typical GI Bill, uh, World War II guy, um, who was a uh, kind of a sales, a traveling salesman. And when I was eight, he taught me about selling lemonade. And I sold lemonade for a quarter a cup in Los Angeles. And I realized uh, I, I was going during rush hour from like, which is long in LA, but from like 2.30 to 5.30 every day, this intersection in the summer. And I only could capture during the red lights, I'd go up to the windows and sell lemonade and I'd have to go back and I'd miss like 15 minutes to refill. And I was, I realized A, I was only capturing a quarter of the traffic and B, I was having to replenish like 20% of the time as well. So I was just missing so much opportunity. So summer of nine, I hired four of my friends, um, paid them $5 a day, which is below minimum wage and child labor. Um, and just spent the whole time replenishing them and uh, made $5,000 the summer of nine. This is like 1993, which is like, I don't know, $20,000 in today's terms. But but uh, but yeah, so I did that summer of nine, 10, 11, um, you know, then started working at a coffee shop when I was 16 as a barista. Um, by, this, by the time I was 17, I was assistant manager. 18, I became manager, opened a bunch of coffee shops through undergrad and business school at USC. Uh, when I was 23, I had 22 coffee shops and kind of a 400-person operation across LA. And then uh, while doing that, I had a bunch of side hustles. My friends had started a t-shirt company. Um, three of us boys in the same fraternity joined the two of them. The five of us were the, um, partners in the, this company called Bamco. We grew into a product manufacturing business. Uh, and we bootstrapped that uh, across six countries to over 150 people and around $37 million in revenue and exited to a publicly traded uniform company. Uh, three of the five guys are still there, uh, which is very cool. Um, started investing in real estate and, and, and in venture um, over that period of time. One was a mobile user acquisition business in Israel um, called SpotAd, came on board to uh, co-run that as president. Uh, we built that from zero to $16 million in revenue in two years, um, which was a really fun and crazy experience. Uh, left that to work for Secretary Clinton on our presidential campaign in Wisconsin in 2016, where we unfortunately did not succeed. Uh, briefly ran for mayor of New York after that, as one does, and then visited Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where I live today uh, with 12 members of my family, and uh, got connected with the George Kaiser Family Foundation, whose mission is to address intergenerational poverty. So here specifically in Tulsa, I started talking to them about early stage investing, diversifying the economy, uh, start working together. A few years later, um, we built Atento Capital uh, together and Atento's um, this early stage investing, um, both we lead in pre-seed and seed here in Tulsa for companies here are willing to relocate here. And we invest in seed stage funds that are not here, uh, which we look for. If we lead a pre-seed deal, we try and bring in one of our seed stage funds to follow on. And then we also co-invest with our seed stage funds for series A and series B opportunistically kind of around the country. And so uh, that's like the quickest version of, of my background today. Wow, that's just incredible. So many crazy and diverse experiences. Anyways, let's talk about your educational background. You went to undergrad at USC and you also got your MBA there. Tell me about that experience. I loved USC. I was in AEPI, the Jewish fraternity, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I and I uh, I finished USC actually in three years when I was twenty years old, and I I, I was paying my way through school, and so. And I also was working full time. So I had a very structured schedule. So I did class on like Mondays and Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And, and, and worked Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Sundays from kind of 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and socialized and studied in between. Um, I was I was pretty involved in the Greek scene as like in and 
lightly involved is like uh, in, in some of the other things um, there is involved in this thing called Scions is a camp for USC alumni. Um, I was, I was pretty involved in kind of going to all the football games, but really like my story at USC was working. Um, and I had a bunch of guys and friends at USC working uh, with me in my coffee shops and then a bunch of, and then side hustling a few different businesses. Um, Cause it was really just hard to, to, you know, I left USC and USC business school with $186,000 in student loans while working full-time um, and having a few side hustles. And so it's just such an expensive experience having, you know, six years of that school, but it's an amazing school. Um, in- interesting, fun fact. I was there for three years for undergrad and three years for business schools. I did it part-time and I was six for six in winning. They won BCS bowl games all six years I was there. And the one year I took off was 05 um, and we lost to Texas. And so I don't know if it's causation versus correlation, but, but uh, we beat Michigan a couple of times if I recall in the Rose Bowl. I was at one of those. Um, and so uh, it was a great experience. I mean, I, I loved it and I went to, I studied business and I got an MBA and while I was in business school, I was applying a lot of what I was learning um, in my coffee shops and then in the product manufacturing business. And so it was really just kind of a, a huge accelerator for my business career. Yeah, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I think you're the reason that um, USC was winning. Transitioning into Atento Capital, which is in Tulsa, my hometown, what is Atento's mission and what type of investments do you typically make? Yeah, so... Interestingly enough, when I visited Tulsa for the first time in September 2017, uh, there was one government-funded VC called I2E, and there was one life sciences VC called OLSF. And um, if you were a young, smart person like yourself from Tulsa, going to Michigan, wanting to come back and build a company, um, there would not be an obvious place uh, for you to go for capital, um, and there would not be an obvious place uh, to work. And so you would be going to San Francisco or New York or anywhere, anywhere, but Tulsa. Um, and, and because of that, a lot of the young smart people moved away and never came back. And a lot of companies that had some initial traction, um, this company called Alchemy, which started in Oklahoma and ended up IPOing, I think for over $3 billion, but it's headquartered in Dallas. And, and there's, I think no employees in Oklahoma, you know, what, how sad, right. And so, so at the same time, um, I was, you know, the California, New York guy, um, you know, I was born in San Francisco, raised in LA, lived in New York, London, Tel Aviv before moving to Tulsa. And I was realizing like, there's like two worlds happening. There was this like coastal world of like startups and tech and forward looking. And there was like the middle of the country, which had a lot of old industry in Tulsa, you know, has a, a huge fossil fuel industry and, and, and actually is doing quite well right now. But at some point in time, um, especially for younger folks, like they want to work in technology or, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, like places like that, open AI. So GKFF kind of recognized this as well. Um, and so we started thinking through strategies that could attract and retain talent and develop talent as well as like be, you know, providing capital as well as a like value add post investment um, to people that want to build companies. And so that's kind of the, the premise of Atento. Um, you know, Atento is, is a majority minority team, um, you know, majority female team as well. Um, and our portfolio is, is the same. And, you know, prior to Atento investing in the companies we have, as far as we can tell, you know, no black person in the state of Oklahoma had ever received venture capital. I mean, like that, you know, that is a big statement and and that that is the reality here, right? And so we believe that the next generation of founders might come from places that other people might typically overlook. And so, you know, we say that we unlock unsung potential through financial and human capital and bridging networks. And we spend our time scouring Tulsa as well as other places in the middle of the country that are often overlooked 
And where most VCs will look for ex-Google product managers in San Francisco, which typically look like me, you know, we'll look for someone that might have a really powerful personal story that examines grit and have taught themselves how to code and and um, it might not have worked in some big tech company um, and work with them to get them to the point where we feel comfortable investing and then work with them closely post-investment to try and give them an unfair advantage and right to win. And we think because a lot of people typically aren't looking at those profiles, um, there, there are some hidden gems there. And so far we feel like we've got a couple that are kind of off to the races and um, it's still early days, but that, that's kind of how we see the world. Gotcha. I'm excited to see where it goes. Following up on that, you've worked with so many entrepreneurs, both from the Tulsa area and outside. So what makes a good entrepreneur? I think there's many different profiles, but some of the commonalities, I would say. So a company, when you, I mean, first of all, I'll talk about a great venture backable entrepreneur, because I think a lifestyle entrepreneur might look a little bit different. Um, There's a company that you invest in is alive as long as the entrepreneur doesn't quit. And so, you know, sometimes it's kind of a race in time between, between how, how long it takes for them to figure it out and pivot the business. And then like, not just running out of money, but not being able to survive anymore. And, and, and what does that mean? That means sometimes a company runs out of money, but the founders working, continuing to try and build it on nights and weekends or living on their friend's couch, et cetera. And like that kind of person that's like their purpose is their personal purpose is so deeply aligned with the company they're trying to build. At the core, like your investment's protected because this person just simply cannot quit. And so, like as long as as he or she is in play, um, then your then your investment is still in play as well. And so, grit in grit and deep personal purpose of the founder slash founders into the problem they're trying to solve are probably the, the 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 single most important like table stakes thing, hard things to test for. And then other things like humility, willingness to take feedback, you know, ability to um, I think ability to kind of talk people into doing crazy things, for example, talk investors into investing them off of a, a dream, talk a customer into doing a pilot with them off of an idea or a PowerPoint without an actual product, or talk someone who's working at Google, who's making $400,000 a year, to take a 50% pay cut to come work with them. Like these are all irrational things. Like this person ultimately either can or cannot do those things. And so, um, and those are at times like hard things to test for, you know, it, it, get it while you're getting to know one, know someone prior to an investment. So that's why we really try as best we can to work with founders as long as we can before making an investment decision, just so we can try and see if they if they have that or not. And ultimately, if they have those things, you know, whatever it, whatever the, the the company they're trying to build is going to change several times before their final destination. So it's more like the is the problem they're solving a big one? Does it have a big total addressable market? Their idea and how they solve that problem is important, but actually probably out of everything I've mentioned, the least important because that idea will change. The question is the problem, not not the solution at, uh, at a time of investment. Very well said. One of the things I love about Atento is the social and economic change you're making in Tulsa. I just think it's wonderful. You know, Michael, we've talked outside the podcast about some investments that Atento has made. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about PatchRx. Yeah, PatchRx is a great story, um, and and one that's still early, but we're we're optimistic on. And there's a lot of leading indicator leading indicators say that it could be on its way. You know, you have two founders; they knew each other from college. Um, one is in, was a uh, was actually an orphan uh, born in Mexico that was adopted by a U.S. family, and he was walking with his grandfather when he was 17 years old, and his grandfather had a heart attack and died. And he's very mathematically minded, and and 
And what he found out was that that heart attack was preventable. He just simply forgot to take his medicine that morning. And something like over half a million people a year, uh, not necessarily die, but, but have significant repercussions from not taking their, not adhering to their medical prescriptions. And A, it causes deaths and a bunch of medical things. And B, it's a very expensive thing for hospitals. And many of these people are older people who just simply, you know, accidentally don't take their medicine because they can't remember. So he, he was at Trinity College studying uh, mathematics and mechanical engineering. He developed a hardware that goes inside a prescription bottle that has sensors that can tell you how many pills you have and connects with the Bluetooth to an application that will remind you to take your medicine. Now, his co-founder, who's a computer a computer science major um, doing the software side, uh, Andrew, you know, beat testicular cancer and, and has to take a great deal of medicine um, on an all the time basis, you know, to, to keep in remittance. And so, and so um, they took combined and their personal purpose is deeply tied to their mission. They combined to start this company, PatchRx. And the original go-to-market was through mom and pop pharmacies. Little did I know, but mom and pop pharmacies make several million dollars in revenue and, and only 55% of Americans adhere to their prescriptions, meaning like basically half of Americans don't. And so if you think about like the entire market of like pharmaceutical spend in America is only half of what it should be because half people don't take their medicine correctly. So for these mom pop pharmacies, if they can get people to take their medicine correctly, people will purchase more medicine and be healthier um, and a significant revenue opportunity for them. And so they, they raised almost a million dollars from these pharmacy owners, and one of them even joined the company, which showed a deep conviction in their go-to-market. And we thought that maybe this hardware-software combo could be a beachhead to be an operating system for these pharmacies. And, and there's a few ways it can go. But the overall problem is a massive one in terms of like people taking their medicine correctly. So um, we met them in January of 21. I think they were living, one was in San Francisco, or one was in Silicon Valley, and one was in San Antonio. Um, and we met them at a demo day. And another VC from the Bay was looking at them as well. But these two guys, you know, their company was set up as an LLC. You know, they were young guys, highly talented guys. But it was going to be, I think, a bit of a project. And for whatever reason, like other VCs were just like, you know, thank you, but but not right now. And we thought that these guys had a ton of potential. It's a big problem they're trying to solve. It's deeply tied to their personal purpose. Um, they've got all these pharmacies invested. Um, there must be something there. And we talked to many of them. So we invested and moved them to Tulsa. And in May of 21, and in September of 21, Medicare announces that they're going to reimburse for prescription adherence um, at a pretty significant rate. So all of a sudden, they're, they can they, they, they have a, a government payer. Um, and and fast forward now, um, they've raised two rounds of capital from uh, um, one at twice what we invested at one at a cap at twice of our cap and another one at a cap over three times our cap with um, with two other VCs. Uh, they've got like a 30 plus person team. Um, they've got over a million dollar run rate um, and growing quickly. And they've signed, you know, over 70 practices um, with this new go to market reimbursed by the government uh, for Medicare. And and uh, it really feels like it's off to the races. And and um, I don't want to like count my eggs before it hatches. But but this is like the kind of thing that we'd love to duplicate over and over again. You know, and, and uh, I don't you know, we we really believe that this, that the, in the, in these two young men and the team that they built and what they're trying to do and that the world will be better for it. And that we really are hoping to continue to unlock their potential. Yeah. That's, you know, such a cool story. I'm so excited to see where patch RX goes next. And, you know, likewise with the Tento and its, its new investments, diving into some more of your experiences, you mentioned that, you know, you worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign and of course ran for mayor of New York as one does, what were these experiences like and how did they serve as a stepping stone for your journey? We're, so for me, um, the Hillary, the sector clinic experience was one um, not of choice, but 
of um, something that I felt obligated to do. You know, I, I'm a grandson of, a, of two Holocaust survivors on one side, my grandmother, who was in Auschwitz from Poland. Um, and on the other side, my grandfather was in Germany and left too late. They didn't believe that, that, that as things were getting worse in 1930s Germany, that, that, that this could happen to them. And as a kid, when I said I was selling my lemonade, my parents actually both worked in nonprofit. And um, in, the, in the Jewish community, my mom worked for the Shoah Foundation, which interviewed Holocaust survivors. And my my, volunt- I, my they, they were very uh, mission-driven. And they said, well, they were worried I was too much of a capitalist. So they said, every hour I worked in the afternoon on my lemonade, I had to volunteer in the morning at one of their nonprofits. So I volunteered at my mom's nonprofit. And my job was to watch the testimonies of the Holocaust survivors and to catalog them. And I've watched, I don't know, maybe a hundred testimonies of Holocaust survivors. And the one thing that was like, like kind of very common th- th- theme was, yes, there's Hitler here. Who's like, obviously the, the, the real kind of antagonist. And then you have the Nazis, but you also have like all of the Germans in like, not just the Germans that like turned in, in their Jewish neighbors, but the Germans that were just complacent in the whole thing and just living their lives. And like, for me, as someone that like, who's like, life is deeply determined by my grandmother's grit of surviving. You know, when she, her and one uncle survived with 38 members of her family did not. Um, and listening to all those testimonies, listening, you know, when I was listening to the rhetoric on the Republican National Convention about blaming immigrants for our problems, and de- villainizing the free press, you know, to me, all of a sudden, this really just felt like, you know, Im- you know, villainizing Jews and gypsies, et cetera, as the problems in 1930s Germany. And I felt at that time that if I didn't do something, that I was as complacent as the Germans, as the Germans were in the, in the 1930s. And so I, um, I actually called the board of the company I was kind of co-running and said, look, I think we should move the entire team to Wisconsin. We're way ahead of our projections and pay them to work on the Clinton campaign. They basically told me I'm out of my mind. And, um, but you can take a leave of absence. And so I did. I spent the last three and a half months on the, on the campaign. I helped organize Madison. Um, it was, you know, everyone kind of laughed at me at the time because we were, you know, the, the Clinton campaign was up by 9%, give or take. And like, there's almost no one ever fathomed that she could lose her. Like, why are you, and everyone's like, why are you doing this? You know, you know, everyone thought it was a given that she would win, but I felt like I couldn't live my, with myself if she didn't, um, and she didn't. And so I'm really happy that I did that. And when we lost, um, I couldn't get myself to go back to my ad tech startup. It just didn't feel like the right thing to do. I wanted to be somehow in the fight of what was happening um, in America. And, you know, I was at the Women's March and and I'm thinking about the immigration ban. And, you know, my grandmother, my grandparents all came in as refugees. Um, and if we're going to be banning immigrants, like what, you know, what would that meant for, you know, for my grandparents, would they not, would they have been banned if the Holocaust happened today? And, um, and so, so yes, I ran for mayor on kind of social and economic justice and generational led change, um, put together a campaign. I'm happy. I'm proud of it. Uh, I did it for four months and four days. I raised a significant, significant amount of capital. I had seven full-time people and about six part-time people and about 40 interns at NYU and two campaign offices and, and God, I got going. Um, and I think the big lesson for me on that, and I'm happy I ran. I'm really happy I dropped out. Wow. Because um, the election was in September of 2017, the Democratic primary, is it's very easy to tell someone like you um, that we want to that we want to change the world. And this is how we help people. And this is this is what we can do to, to help those in need. And I, and I feel very comfortable with that. What's really hard which took me unfortunately too long to, to, to realize is when you go to someone that you're trying to help and you say, Hey, you know, I know you're in a homeless shelter and I know that the 
father of your kids is in prison for three strikes laws. I know your kids are in schools that only 8% pass state tests. And I know you don't have access to healthcare. And I know that like you, you barely have access to food and like all of these deep complex things that you have like theoretical policies to solve for. But when you look at those folks in the eye and you say, if you vote for me, you know, I'm going to help you get unstuck from where you are. You know, some of those people believe that and, and, and need something to believe that will change them because they know that where they are, they're stuck and they don't know how to get out of it. And when they're texting you pictures of your stickers on their kid's locker, all of a sudden you realize this is like a deep, you know, this is a very personal thing. And, and there's, you know, there's a, a small chance, but a non-zero chance that you win. And in the situation that you win, uh, there's a non-zero chance that, you know, even with the best of intentions, these people's lives could be worse because of it. And the pressure of that very much crushed me. And I actually like lost 20 pounds over the course of four months. Um, I show you a picture you would recognize me because um, I really was stressed out that, you know, there's de Blasio was potentially being indicted for like bribery or like for campaign donation issues. And if he was, there, you know, there, were, there would be really an open race. And in and, and somehow that I ended up falling into mayorship. Um, if by the way, COVID ha- would have happened during that term, you know, some of the people, you know, what if the, what if the teachers go on strike the, the first day or something happens in, in the people I want to help's lives are, are worse because of it. And that's a, deep amount of pressure. And you have to, if you're going to run for office, you must deeply feel in your heart of hearts that you can deliver on the promises you make and you can help the people you want to serve most. And so, um, so I ran, I dropped out. It was a very hard time in my life dropping out. Um, and I think the big lesson for me from there actually in the last five years is I feel very lucky. I get to live in Tulsa now and work very closely with the George Kaiser Family Foundation, a private foundation. Um, we're able to make, do a variety of things that I think are, are making the world better, are serving people, are helping lives, um, without the pressure of taxpayers to answer to. Um, and I think that, you know, we live in a world of highly concentrated wealth in America, probably more concentrated than I think it should be. And I think there, within that, you have the Mayor Bloomberg's and the George Kaiser's and the, the Schusterman's and other, you know, giving pledge uh, members that are, are really making the world better. And, and there's a lot of ways to make the world better. And, and elected office is not the only way, though it's a very important way. And so, um, so I'm really grateful for the experience, both the Clinton campaign and the New York mayoral run. But I, I'm also very grateful to not be in public office in any way, shape, or form. That's super inspirational and great to hear. I mean, it's such a unique and wonderful experience. How many people can say they ran for mayor of New York? Um, you know, we've talked a lot about your professional endeavors. Tell me about your hobbies. I mean, recently we found out we um, box at the same gym in Tulsa. You have two kids. You were in Argentina for the World Cup and uh, got to see the iconic parade. And of course, Messi's fairy tale ending. What else? Yeah, now my, my son Leo, uh, I joke he's named after Leo Messi. But um, no, my um, so my wife's from Argentina and then Israel. Um, and so we go to Israel every year in December and it was amazing celebrating the street. It really truly felt historic. Um, so yeah, so look, fitness, I mean, I believe much believe in like holistic living. So I, I try and do 300 minutes of fitness a week. Um, that's across boxing, engine room, running, um, as well as ISO Club. This new really kind of I strongly recommend anyone in Tulsa check out ISO Club. Uh, it's behind Charleston's on Brookside. Um, this is like future of fitness gym. Um, and in addition to fitness, I mean, I have two young kids, Leo's uh, 26 months and Olivia's uh, seven months. And I try and spend as much time as with them and my wife, Romy, as I can. Um, but look, I mean, you know, my wife's, you know, we spend, you know, I move around a lot for work. So I'm in New York. I mean, I'm moving between New York and LA and then Israel and Argentina for family uh, as well as some work in Israel. And so between all of that and the fact that I also like, I have deep personal purpose in my work. And so, you know, I'll, I'll spend the next three hours today doing work-related things. And then three hours after that, 
hosting a 30 person asado, which is like an Argentinian barbecue um, with some friends and colleagues at work, as well as a set of founders that just moved here from Barcelona for a company called Robbie AI, another gal just immigrated here from Russia. Um, and, and yeah, like we, in bringing them in to meet our community. And so like my passion is bringing people together um, personally and professionally, which all kind of merged for one because I get to work with a lot of my friends. Um, and so that's how I spend much of my time. I hosted a, you know, big Shabbat dinner on Friday. Um, hosted, you know, hosted in New York, a 14 person dinner on Wednesday, a 30 person event on Thursday. I attended a 18 person dinner before that 30 person event. So like a lot of things of bringing people together around different things. Um, I've, you know, my favorite stat is I've introduced 12 married couples and 21 births that have came from that. And so like, there's not necessarily, you know, so, so somehow like connectivity and, and building community, um, is probably my favorite pastime. Unbelievable. They should call you a uh, Michael, the matchmaker. You know, as we wrap up this episode for students who are in high school or college or even younger, what advice do you have for them? If they want to learn more about, you know, entrepreneurship or VC or simply just get involved in this space. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing. I'll tell you the easiest thing that I wish I did. That I didn't do that. I should have done, you know, in my fraternity alone, the, were the founders of Tinder, founders of box, um, you know, Aaron Levy from Box, Justin Mateen from Tinder, um, founders of Task Us, Jasperware, um, founders of, I think, a company that was called Lactate that's called something else, but also is a unicorn, um, Andrew Ritter. And I think there's like seven or eight unicorns from like, you know, in my, while I was there alone, I wish I had a CRM and kept in touch with all the people I was friends with in college more intentionally. It's just hard. And if I was to make one piece of, give one piece of advice to, to anyone that wants to do venture is think about who you like and you want to be in touch with. You're going to move somewhere when you graduate and it's going to be hard to keep in touch. Have a CRM where you intentionally keep in touch with the people that are important to you so you don't lose touch with those people because you and them might do something amazing together further on. And like you will end up, you're, you're both like kind of together right now and you're both going to go in different directions, you know, more and more and more. And so it's going to be hard to stay in touch in touch without intentionality. Um, but that intentionality could lead to co-founding a business together or doing a, doing a transaction together or investing in a company together or something or being introduced to a founder. So a ton of intentionality around relationship management, because in college, you know, the mo your circle will never be bigger than the day you graduated college. It just won't be because you have so many people you're interacting with all the time. How you maintain that? Um, have more intentionality than I did because it's such a missed opportunity for me. That's great advice. Michael, it's always great catching up with you. You have such a fascinating background. You know, I think one time you told me that you didn't like to do your laundry in college. And sadly, I can, you know, fully resonate with that. Uh, we talked about some great things on the podcast and off the podcast. And I'm excited to stay in touch and hopefully do this again soon in the future. Thanks for having me. Hope to, hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap. See you next time on Kicking It with Krish. Stay tuned.